This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. So uh, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Fertility Hour. Um, I'm honored to have this next guest. Um, It's His name is Dr. Isaac Golden. He's a research member of the National Institute of Integrative Medicine and a director of the Australasian College of, can you help me with this pronunciation? Homeopathy. Oh my gosh, thank you. Named after Dr. Hanuman, who founded homeopathy. So Hanuman, yeah. Okay, thank you, thank you. That just seemed like kind of a mouthful at that time. Uh, Dr. Dr. Golden has been a homeopathic practitioner since 1984 and a teacher since 1988. He founded the Australasian College of this word homeopathy in 1990, which offers distance education courses in homeopathic and natural medicine. Isaac is a regular contributor to local and international academic journals and is the author of 11 books on homeopathy. He has lectured in 10 countries, a world authority on homeoprophylaxis, the use of homeopathic medicines for specific infectious disease prevention, and was the first person to be awarded a PhD from a mainstream Australian university for research on a homeopathic topic. He was an honorary research fellow, Faculty of Science, Federation University, Australia from 2013 to 2016. He is presently undertaking a range of research projects in Australia and overseas. He's currently deputy chair of the National Institute of Integrative Medicine Ethics Committee and is a research consultant. He's the Australian contact person for Liga Medicorum Homeopathica Internationalis and um, also the president of the Victorian branch of the Australian Homeopathic Association. Well, let's just say, gosh, you seem quite busy and very much immersed in the world of homeopathy. And so thank you, Dr. Golden. Thank you so much for joining us today. Charlene, you make me sound very old, which actually I am. Um, And (laughs) I, I wasn't, I'm no longer president of the Victorian branch. That was two decades ago. I see. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I think I think I make you sound highly esteemed and extremely okay. busy and very smart. So, um, okay. Well, well thank you, you know, so much for your invitation as well. I do appreciate it. Although I, I do feel in some ways I'm on your program under slightly false pretenses because, as I explained, I wouldn't class myself as an as a specialist in fertility management. But there there are certainly many things that homeopathy can offer, which are possibly uh, a little bit different to what many of the people watching would have gone through. Um, I I understand. And just so that you get a sense of our our audience, I mean, um, I mean, most are women and who have been trying for, you know, maybe several months to several years. They they have fertility issues. They are looking for natural approaches, um, whether they are trying to conceive naturally or doing the IVF route. And so we do have an interest in homeopathy and we have questions about using vaccinations while trying to conceive because we really educate women and men that there is a preconception period 
where um, the body is producing new batches of sperm, where the egg cells are maturing into the egg you end up ovulating. And so there's that very protective time period and what we do to our bodies affects that egg and sperm quality. So, you know, that's why, um, you know, we wanted to have you on and kind of pick your brain about how can homeopathy help? Um, because let me, let me just kind of, when someone is going through fertility issues, it's very emotional. It's very stressful. It's, um, it's hard on the body. A lot of emotion, a lot of stress hormones are going up and down. Hor hormonal changes are happening. And so I know that homeopathy can offer a lot in that arena. And so that's, you know, what I wanted to ask you about. Um, okay. So obviously, you know, I've been in practice for over 30 years and I've worked with quite a number of couples over that time uh, who have been having problems conceiving. And most of them have come to me after they've tried other things, whether it be the orthodox options or natural options, particularly looking at nutritional options, naturopathic more related. And, and those options all have a lot to offer. Uh, and certainly nutrition and, and looking at the actual pure physiological aspects. I mean, obviously, if a man's sperm count is extremely low, then there are physical things uh, as simple as taking zinc, for example, which will increase it. So I'm sure that most of your audience would be familiar with those already. And you've probably certainly had experts on in those areas. So I'm not going to try and go over that. But where I've found that I've been able to help over the years, and um, there are a couple of little Isaacs out there apparently who have been named after me, so their parents tell me, um, is looking at other issues. Because you see, in homeopathy, we find that we look at the whole person, very, very important. And Dr. Hunneman, who founded homeopathy over 200 years ago, one of the great contributions he made was to really emphasize that we are more than just a physical body. And you talked about stress and things like that. It's not just during the period of trying to conceive. It's over the person's life. And, for example, I've found with certain more women than men, but occasionally men, uh, that if they had severe trauma in their infancy, and it's not always sexual abuse, but that certainly is one very definite trauma that can affect fertility. It's as though something is set up in the, the person's system. And when I talk about their system, I'm talking about the physical body, the emotional self, the intellectual self. Now, there are more selves than that, but that's enough to get started <laughs> with on this plane. So what we find is that traumas get trapped into the system. Now, I, don't, I think you can see my hands. Uh, the way that homeopathy considers this is that we're all pushed out of balance from time to time on any of those three levels. And normally, if we're healthy, our self-healing mechanism brings us back to balance. But sometimes something pushes us out of balance and we're locked in. It's like um, a trauma can create a layer which prevents the self-healing mechanism from returning the person to balance. And sexual trauma, emotional trauma, being unloved as a child can do that. And so what the homeopathic medicines are very good at doing is going back 20, 30 years even 
releasing the trauma and then that allows the body's self-healing balance to be restored from within, which is great because you don't need to keep taking medicines. If you can assist the body to heal itself, then it will continue to do that. And, you know, vaccination is probably the first major trauma most infants suffer. And that can last for a person's whole life. Sometimes we get back to that. Uh, and now I know that you are wanting to talk later on, and we will, about vaccines during pregnancy or during the period of conception. But even early childhood vaccines occasionally can be a factor. And the reason I say that with confidence is because when I treat vaccine damage, and these days I only do two, two days a week clinic and probably half of my patients are vaccine injured children and some adults as well. And when we treat vaccine injury with homeopathic potencies of the suspected vaccine and the person improves, for example, if a child's autistic, and they have no eye contact, they have no language, they have no social interaction with other people and even their parents. It's like if you remove the, the block and all those symptoms go, their child over a period of maybe one or two years returns to full functioning, we know if those certain remedies are used, it must have been the vaccine that caused the initial problem because otherwise that remedy wouldn't have worked. And I've occasionally seen and usually is a last resort, to be honest, in patients who have trouble with conception, using a potency of a vaccine can sometimes unlock that. But certainly, more commonly, dealing with those early childhood traumas or even later traumas, you know, in teens, um, when they become young adults, sometimes getting married is a trauma <laughs> for a whole range of reasons, uh, some of which are obvious and some of which aren't. Uh, that if you can actually unlock those traumas, the self-healing occurs. And that's where homeopathy has a lot of potential because the potentized substances can reach into the subtle bodies. They can reach into the emotional body and the, and the lower mental body or the intellectual body, as well as the physical body, and cause change. Mm, that's really fascinating. I mean, are you able to kind of go back into your... Um, memory banks and, and think of an example of um, a couple that was dealing with some type of fertility issue and kind of the, the trauma that you um, were, I, I know that the homeopathic um, um, intake is extremely thorough. I mean, you go back into every detail, but do you, do you remember a certain incidence with a couple where you go, oh, that could, that was it? Yeah, so one that I do remember, which is not that long ago, because um, my memory is not <laughs> exactly first class, so recent ones are good, um, was a couple who came in and, you know, we talked and, and I always allow at least an hour for the first consult because with something like this, one doesn't know where the consultation will lead. One doesn't know in advance what the problem's going to be. Now, this was actually a couple who could not conceive, but yet they'd been to orthodox people, they'd been to nutritional people, and everything seemed to be fine. So in other words, all the orthodox tests, nothing showed up as being a particular physiological problem. So I then started talking about uh, early stuff, emotional stuff, 
stuff from their childhood. And the, the wife told me, and she was very distressed about this, that she had been sexually abused as a young girl. And what we came to was a sort of a, an understanding, and it may or may not have been exactly the full understanding, but there was something within her which sort of still carried a degree of shame and also a feeling of not being worthy of having children. And this, of course, the mind can rule the body. We know this in so many ways. And so what the main treatment was, was going back to that episode in her life and giving her the appropriate remedy to work on that. And within six months, she was pregnant. Now, this is a couple that have been trying for years and where there was no obvious physical problem. So that sort of example is not uncommon um, in my experience, because as I said, I don't necessarily um, specialize, as some homeopaths apparently do, infertility, where they may use homeopathic potencies. So you see, um, homeopathy can be used in a range of different ways. In that example I just gave you, I used high potencies of infrequent doses, like once a fortnight. So you're not taking something all the time. And those high potencies can go right back to the person's childhood and their infancy if necessary. But you can also use homeopathics differently, like, for example, to change hormone levels. If, for example, in a, uh, there are problems with estrogen or progesterone levels or in the male testosterone levels, you can actually use high or low potencies of hormones to increase or decrease hormone levels. Mm. Or sometimes there are other remedies, a very well-known remedy or two well-known remedies in homeopathy is sepia and pulsatilla. And many of your listeners who have used homeopathics have probably, uh, those names are probably familiar, but they are constitutional remedies um, for other uses. In other words, they have their own personality profile. The pulsatilla type is a uh, needs love. They're very caring. They love, they're very tactile people. They love hugs and cuddles and, um, usually as long as they feel secure in a relationship, they'll blossom. The sepia, on the other hand, when they're unwell, they want to be on their own. They, they, even if they're upset, they don't want consolation. They can push their loved ones away. Low-potency sepia is one of our best remedies for postnatal depression. In fact, I would say I've seen probably about an 80% success rate for patients who have seen me with postnatal depression over the, the decades, and that's all they need a low potency of sepia. But we use, if we want to stimulate estrogen or progesterone, then we would use low potencies of those remedies or low potencies of the hormones themselves. If we want to reduce the levels, we would use high potencies of the hormones or maybe those other remedies with the male. If we want to increase testosterone levels, we can use a low potency of testosterone or we can look at the endocrine system and go back and it may well be and this is this is another thing that i've actually seen in a number of patients over the years talking about a physical thing that they were not able to conceive but when we looked at the case that the woman in particular 
gave symptoms of underactive thyroid. Now, you know, the endocrine system or the glandular system is a negative feedback loop. The thyroid is regarded by many as the master gland. So if the thyroid's underactive, that can affect the female reproductive hormones. And also the male, by the way, as well, although it's much more common in females than males for whatever reason. And so by, in a couple of cases, by working using homeopathic medicines, um, in particular, I use a low potency of TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. So some people give low potencies to the hormone itself. I actually prefer to go back one stage in the endocrine cycle and use low potencies of TSH, supported by something like bladderwrack or kelp, which is very rich in natural iodine. So you need to give the nutrition to the thyroid, which is through the herbal, and you need to stimulate the uh, endocrine system to start the natural increase in the production of the thyroid hormone itself using the low potency TSH. And that then can stimulate the rest of the endocrine system, including the reproductive system. So, you know, it really is a, a case by case issue and trying to find out uh, what really is the cause. Homeopathy is, I mean, obviously it's so different than conventional medicine, but you talk about treating the thyroid or or different hormonal imbalances and, and just on such a subtle energetic level and for it to be effective because when you look at um, conventional or modern medicine, we're always trying to kind of inundate, bombard, overpower. And so it's sort of like, how do both, I mean, one feels a little bit assaulting on the system and the other feels like, wow, it's so subtle and energetic. Could it really be that effective? Um, which I think most people would really rather um, go to that approach. But well, remember, these are, this is the, the, the era, if you like, of nano nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. I'm actually off to my fourth visit to India next month to do research on their immunization, homeopathic immunization programs there. But uh, they are doing amazing work over there. It's, a, it's an incredible country, India. It's, there's great affluence and there's great poverty. Uh, there's incredible scientific technology as well as, you know, a lack of basic medical services in some areas. So you get, it's, it's a country of great extremes. I, I just love going there because of the work that they're doing, but they're leading the, the, the world in researching uh, homeopathics from a nanotechnology point of view. In fact, I was just looking at a paper uh, yesterday where they looked at the, um, the weight, the nano weight of homeopathically potentized materials um, compared to the actual potency scale. And what they found that is, if you've got a graph with the, I guess I'm on there, um, if you've got a graph where the, um, the, the potency is along the x-axis and the weight is along the y-axis, the one going up, they've got a graph like that, which showed that the weight kept reducing as the potency increased to a point and then the weight remained the same. Now, according to orthodox medicine, this is impossible but they've done repeated experiments with different medicines in different potencies and using very sophisticated uh, nano measuring equipment 
And they've done this repeatedly. They've shown this graph repeatedly. And what that means is that uh, once you get past a per certain potency, there still is at a very, very minute, I mean, minute to the point, if you sent the sample to an orthodox laboratory and said, what's in this, they'd say nothing. You know, water or milk sugar, if it was, or, or sucrose, if it was a little pill, mm. they'd say that there's no active ingredient. Whereas in fact, what this is showing is there is an active ingredient, but it's been reduced past the point that if you like the more conventional measuring systems in laboratories can, can deal with, it can be dealt with at a nano level. So eventually, and I don't know if I'll still be alive when it happens, but eventually there will be, if you like, an orthodox explanation of homeopathy using the understanding of nano technology, nano uh, interactions, uh, because that's where they exist. Now, if we'll ever be able to understand the full interaction of even nanoparticles with our emotional and intellectual selves, I don't know. Mm. The bottom line is we don't need to. What we can do is see if a certain procedure works. Now, you know, we, in orthodox medicine, they used aspirin for decades mm -hmm. without knowing how it worked, but they knew it did work. And then eventually people came and they worked out the mechanism of action. And that's exactly this, the parallel analogy with homeopathy. In an orthodox sense, we don't know how it works, but we can prove that it does work. And you see, that's the work I do going to Cuba four times, to India, this is my fourth trip, and, uh, and being in contact with researchers around the world on the homeopathic immunization. We can't explain how it works. Um, in terms of orthodox medicine and orthodox immunology. But what we can show in literally tens of millions of people that it does work. And that's the most important thing. And we know that it works safely, just as homeopathic treatment is safe. Okay. I mean, that opens up a whole other what yeah. is it? Bag of uh, worms. Gosh, I mean, there might there might have to be a part two on this interview because um, a lot of people and I'm just going to play devil's advocate. They could say, oh, India, I mean, aren't they still having um, epidemics of polio and things like that? Um, they need vaccines. Are these really being effective in stopping epidemics? And so we'll probably let, let's hold that as far as. Um, talking about homeoprophylaxis, because in here in America, I don't think homeoprophylaxis is that well known. I could be mistaken. We have a pretty smart audience, but it's, um, it, it's, it's still starting to become known, but it, little by little, it, yeah, a number of people over there that have had conferences. I actually attended a conference in Dallas, Texas, a couple of years ago, uh -huh. run by a, a colleague of mine, Silla Watcock, but, um, you know, so it's slow. It, it is, resuming um, the, the, the American understanding of homeopathy is starting to spread again. In the early 1900s, um, the late 1800s, a third of all GPs, general practitioners in America, were homeopathic doctors. They, they used homeopathy as well. Then the Flexner Report came in your country um, in the early 1900s, and that changed, that wiped out most of the homeopathic medical schools. And then there's a whole lot of history with pharma and et cetera, et cetera, I won't go into. But 
yeah, homeopathy was very, very popular um, uh, over a decade ago in America, and it almost was wiped out, but it's now steadily coming back, particularly amongst better educated, uh, more affluent people, because they're the people who understand their choices. Um, in India, uh, orthodox medicine is used a great deal. But there's a resurgence, even though India already is the, if you like, the, the uh, uh, keeping the flame of homeopathy burning around the world in, the, in terms of numbers. They have over 200,000 homeopathic medical doctors in India, 200,000. They've got hundreds of medical colleges, homeopathic medical colleges. And for example, um, I'm going to be visiting the CCRH, the Central Council for Research in Homeopathy, which is the peak national body for research. They've got over a thousand doctors and scientists working there. That's more than the number of homeopaths in Australia. So mm. it's the numbers are amazing. And uh, but yet uh, they do follow a lot of orthodox practices, but they've delivered the world's largest uh, interventions in literally 20 million people per annum uh, immunization inventions, uh, but they still use vaccines. But interestingly enough, Gates, Bill Gates was kicked out of India uh, not that long ago because of the damage caused by a vaccine that he was promoting. So that's an, is another. Mm, wow, that that's a okay. That's that's an interesting topic, and that's definitely a part two. Um, so okay, when when we are reflecting back on fertility and yeah. homeopathy, um, I mean, it, it seems like. I hope by listening to this, people won't look at homeopathy as sort of, I've tried, you know, everything, maybe I should consider this. I mean, because even say that you use IVF or IUI or some type of assisted reproductive technology, or, or you're just trying to take care of yourself um, and try to conceive naturally. I mean, homeopathy can be brought in as a first, a primary tool, right? It's not like, I've exhausted all efforts. Let me take a look at this because what you were saying is um, you can you can treat the thyroid hormonal imbalances, trauma that might be um, affecting the subconscious, and you know stopping you from getting pregnant or feeling your body feeling safe enough to get pregnant. So it has a lot of applications as far as fertility goes, and I'm wondering if um, does homeopathy say can it remedy something like EMF exposure? I mean, that is, you know, I mean, we're surrounded obviously by it and that's affecting sperm quality, egg quality, et cetera. Um, yeah, there are, there are remedies that um, we can use for almost anything. Uh, I use quite a bit a homeopathic potency of x-ray. And uh, if a person's had a lot of x-rays, um, then Sometimes that re that remedy can be very helpful, but it also can, because homeopathy works on what's called the principle or the law of similars. If something is similar, then it will still have a potential benefit. And so sometimes when people come in um, talking about EMF exposure, I, I might give them a potency of X-ray, but there are new remedies being developed all the time in homeopathy. I mean, we have something like 3,000 remedies and many of them have thousands of symptoms listed from the, the mind through to the head, then to the toes and everything in between. Um, and so 
you know, it's a massive database beyond any one person's mind to hold it all. And that's why these days we have techniques like computer repertorization, which means we can put in key symptoms and then the computer will sort the remedies that are associated with those symptoms. And you might put in, say, eight symptoms, and that will give, then give you a matrix showing the, the remedies that cover, best cover those particular symptoms. And then you can, you know, manipulate it. Like in the old days when I started, it was all done by hand. And I've got a, you know, a thick repertory, which is just about fallen apart because it's over 30 years old and has been used many, many times. And that's what we used to do. Sometimes we'd have to take a case for an hour or so, then go away for another hour or so and sit down and do these, you know, quite complicated repertorial matrices. These days with the computers, you can do all of that in 10 minutes. Mm. So it makes it much quicker and much easier. And the, the repertories are developing all the time and new remedies are being brought in. But I want to just go back to a point mm -hmm. you just said mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, homeopathy possibly being used not as a last resort, but earlier on in the process. And just make a, a general point that a lot of people who are trying to conceive, they spend a huge amount of effort trying to become as healthy as possible, which is a really good thing to do, by the way. But for most people these days still, healthy means you know, you can run, not necessarily a marathon, but you can, you can go jogging, you can do push-ups, you eat good food, you try and minimise exposure to toxins on every level, etc., etc. They don't always remember that health means emotional health and intellectual health. And, mm -hmm. you know, certainly homeopathy can work on the physical side of things, but very importantly, it can work on those deeper things, as we talked about earlier. And very often, you know, um, if there is that blockage on that more subtle level, maybe from infancy or childhood, until that's removed, the benefit of physical health will not be fully appreciated, will not be fully able to be uh, used by the whole system. Because, you see... Our, our God-given self-healing mechanism has an inward intelligence that will always try and heal the, the, this most serious thing first and the least serious thing last. Now, the least serious thing is our skin. The next level down in the hierarchy is the mucous membrane. So that's why sometimes when people get skin rashes or mucus discharges, that's a good sign. It's a sign that the system is trying to eliminate through the least critical organs. The most critical area of all is the will to live. So we, ha we have a massive range from, you know, the, the skin to the will to live and everything in between. But what the point I'm making is that if there is trauma on that very subtle level, the level of will, the level of peace of mind, for want of a better word, then the the body's self-healing mechanism will put more energy to that than to the physical self. And so instead of healing and balancing being completed on the physical self, even if the person is having a good diet and supplements and exercise, etc., if most of their healing energy is going to that emotional trauma, then you need to, to get rid of that. You need to 
help heal that on that very subtle level. And then the physical body will receive all that the, the self-healing capacity that it can. And you see, one of the lovely things about homeopathy is that both the patient and the practitioner don't need to know exactly what's there, what's wrong, or what's happened. Very often, patients, adult, adult patients come in and they know that something happened, but they don't know what. You don't need to recover the memory to be able to work on that. What you need to be able to do is understand how the person's current symptoms are reflecting what's wrong. And this is one of the great contributions Dr. Hunneman made, was to show really clearly that we don't need to work out theories of this, that, or something else and be correct for the medicine to help as long as we understand how what has happened is now expressing itself through the symptoms of the patient. To, doc, to Dr. Hahnemann, the symptoms were everything because they were the body's self-healing mechanisms attempt to produce a positive result. They were showing how that individual person was reacting to the stress that they experienced. You might have 10 people who experience trauma in infancy and they'll need 10 different remedies because they manifest, their own self-healing mechanism is manifesting the symptoms differently. And as the symptoms change, the needed remedy changes. And that was, that's the beauty of homeopathy when it's practiced in its pure state, in its truly classical state, is that the practitioner will spend the time necessary to really understand the changes that have occurred to the extent that it's able, the timing, and it's like being a detective. When I take a case, I always ask people, when symptoms change, how old were you? And it's amazing how often you'll say, oh, did you realize that that change occurred the same year that this thing happened? Oh, I never thought of that before. It's amazing how often that simple little connection can really open up a case because some sort of trauma happened to a person or immense change Symptoms change. It might have been chronic headaches. Uh, it might have been a change in the menstrual cycle, which was not immediately related to the change because they might have been some months later. But if you put them together in the whole history of the person's life and say, okay, that is a point of change in your symptom history, and that is very likely the cause. So we'll treat that cause. Now, if you treat the cause and the symptoms change again, you know that you've dealt with at least part of the problem. Does that make sense? It does. And I mean, it was just so poetic and beautiful um, how you explained that. And, and I love how you brought up um, about how um, the body, it focuses on kind of the, the, the will to live was kind of like the, the most important out to the skin. And if, if you do have that type of trauma. I mean, people could be listening going, well, I don't have big traumas in my life, but it's, it's interesting what the subconscious mind holds on to as traumas, right? And sometimes you don't even remember birth, uh, you know, birth trauma um, coming out of the birth canal that could be traumatic. And I, I've definitely seen that with people work through that. And, and so homeopathy can really address it. And then once it does, then the body can refocus. Okay. Now I can heal here. Um, 
reproductive. Can I just or, actually yeah. say one thing, uh, Charlie, sure. that I think is really important for your audience to understand? Uh-huh. Being really practical in the real world, not everyone who calls themselves a homeopath has expert homeopathic training or experience. And I'm not denigrating any other modality because every modality can contribute to a positive response in its own unique way. Um, But I do know in Australia, and I'm sure it is the same in America, that there are many people who call themselves homeopaths or add homeopathy to their list of things they do um, with a minimal uh, amount of actual deep training. They may be very, very good at first aid, acute um, you know, treatments. Uh, a lot of people use complexes rather than individual remedies. But So what I'm talking about, for your listeners, if they want to avail themselves of something like this, they need to see a homeopath who specialises in homeopathy, who understands what we call constitutions, miasms, layers of never well since. You know, that statement of never well since is an enormously significant one. And, and actually, it brings to mind another case where I had a, a patient uh, where the, the wife, again, um, was never well since glandular fever. Now, we all know people probably who have never quite had the same energy or the zest for life since glandular fever or Epstein-Barr. But you don't think about it for fertility. But this mm-hmm. was a big thing in this lady's case. We treated it using high potencies of the, the nosode, the potency of the organism itself. And lo and behold, within some months she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't definitively, definitively prove that that was the reason why she became pregnant. All I can say is that when I took her case, and they'd been trying once again for years to fall pregnant, the the couple, when I took her case, there was a clear never well since from glandular fever. And once that was dealt with, not long after that, she fell pregnant. Now, that might have been good fortune, good timing, but it's, I think, an example of how we have to deal with the traumas. And, and the traumas aren't all, you know, sexual abuse or being bullied at school. Uh, those things are very significant. But it also can be a flu that the person's never fully recovered from. Or, you know, they've been overseas and they've got um, cholera or hep A or something like that you know, uh, from food and water overseas, and they've never been the same. Mm-hmm. See, the, the key thing to look for in a carefully taken case, and you have to spend time to do this, is well, where are the points of never well since? It's such an important little phrase that in um, determining, you know, real causes. And whenever you see a never well since, uh, in a, in a case history with symptoms, and a person may have three or four of them, you know that you still have to deal with something there. There, there is a block there which has prevented the self-healing mechanism from fully coming back to balance like we were talking before. And homeopathy, as I said, is great for moving the blocks. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, thanks for bringing that up. And, and just to, as a side note with the glandular fever, or Epstein-Barr virus, I mean, I think there's a lot we don't know about that virus, but it, it does make sense as far as fertility goes because um, it's been linked to a, a lot of conditions that they consider to be autoimmune disorders like Hashimoto's is actually yeah. Epstein-Barr that can lay dormant in the body and then reappear. So um it, it makes sense to me um, with that. It case. lies dormant, but if it is lying dormant mm -hmm. and it is still a factor, there will be a, a clue in the symptom history. And this is the point that Hunneman was saying, that if something is, it's not active, it's not in an active phase, but if it's influencing there in the background, the symptoms will change somewhat. Mm -hmm. And it may not be blindingly obvious. It might be quite subtle, like the person becomes a bit more irritable or the person um, weeps over trifles more easily. You know, it can be little things like that, which in the big scheme of things don't seem to, to be, uh, you know, really significant. But if you notice a change on reflection in those sorts of things, that can be an indication of a, a layer, a blockage in the system. Mm. It, it brings up another thing. I mean, this is kind of, um, it, it's, they call it like the 21st century disease, uh, uh, adrenal fatigue, HPA axis dysregulation. Um, I know from our conversation now that I'm sure homeopathy can address it, but how, what's a unique way that homeopathy kind of looks at that um, and addresses adrenal well, issues? Well, you know, what's the cause of the adrenal fatigue? That's the mm -hmm. first question. So the uh, adrenal fatigue is the result but what's the cause? Mm -hmm. So I know my, my wife's a, uh, a very experienced nurse and a naturopath and a diabetes educator, and we work in um, very complementary <laughs> ways, although even every now and again she'll say, oh, you know, homeopathy, there's nothing there, because she, you know, uses mainly nutritional things, and, and she has some fantastic supplements, which I'm sure, you know, anyone in America would have access to um, for restoring you know, the adrenal system when the, the person's being burnt out, where they've been, you know, uh, trying to do too many things. But, you know, what's the real cause? Is it just that they're in a really busy job and it's so demanding, they just, you know, work 20 hours a week and when they, um, yeah, 20 hours a day and they spend four, day, four hours sleeping <laughs> with quick, you know, meals on the way. That's an extreme example. But, you know, there are a lot of people where it can be as simple as that. But then, um, you know, there's a lot of things that cause adrenal burnout besides just, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Because mm -hmm. once again, and I know I'm sounding repetitive here, if we've got something subtle in the background, it's always draining our energy. Now, it, we may be only working, you know, 35, 40 hours a week. And we might come home and, and rest and, and go for walks with the kids and, and, you know, do things which makes the lifestyle look um, relaxed compared to, to many people. But if there's this constant drain in the background of processing, 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 that can also lead to adrenal fatigue as well. So, you know, that once again, there can... The causes can be physical, right through to the most subtle causes. And and once again, it comes back to why. In fact, when I used to do a lot of uh, lecturing with students, I used to tell them um, 
before they finish the course and say, when you set up your clinic, if you're sitting there and, and you know, your patient's sitting there behind your patient, on the wall behind the patient, put a three-letter word. And that should remind you always to do your job. And the three-letter word is why. Because if you can find the why, you're more than 50% along the way to, uh, to treat. And, yeah, in homeopathy, we can use potencies um, of adrenal hormones. You know, but mm. I would rather find out the why. Also, in homeopathy, if you move away from the actual potencies of the hormones themselves, you can look at certain remedies which are very, very often associated with burnout because they're people who are always rushing, always active. They can't relax. Their mind is always full of thoughts. You know, the, the flower essences also have remedies for that, constant unwanted thoughts, um, all that sort of stuff. So there's more than one modality that is capable of treating on that level. But it's a really important level. Um, and so it gives the homeopath a range of options if you're treating something as physical as adrenal fatigue. But I would personally always use physical support as well for the adrenal system. I wouldn't just rely on homeopathy. You know, I mean, obviously, I love homeopathy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my number one thing. But every modality has something to offer. And I think it's uh, any practitioner who thinks that their modality is only the only one that's ever needed is very unwise. Um, you know, we should use what's best for the patient. The, the patient's needs need to be number one. And if sometimes that involves using physical things, fine. If sometimes a person needs to go to a chiropractor or an osteopath, fine. If sometimes they need drugs, fine. You know, drugs at times can be life-saving. But most of the time, drugs are suppressive. And, you know, in a way, Big Pharma has, the perfect, has found the perfect business model. If you do three things, if you reduce infant mortality, if you increase life expectancy and you increase the percentage of people with chronic illness, you're going to make a fortune. <laughs> Say no more. Success in all fronts. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about big pharma. No, uh, it is flu season here in America and... and um, I mean, people have died. The media is all over this story um, that we are under attack by this influenza virus. And so, you know, the flu vaccine, and it's like, I want to tread so lightly into this vaccine topic because it's so polarizing. It's very political. I don't want to get into all that, but I just, you know, some people are like, I'm kind of scared. Should I get vaccinated? But I'm trying to conceive you know, what are the considerations and what can, let's say, uh, homeopathy or homeoprophylaxis offer as okay. protection? So very, very gently into this thing. Yes. Not full on. If you want to do a full on one later on another time, we <laughs> can do that. But, but, you know, it's not appropriate here and I totally understand that. Let me, let me make just a couple of brief points. Okay. Vaccines were first used in 1796. Homeopathic immunization was first used in 1798. They've both been around for over 200 years. Homeopathic immunization is not an attempt to mimic 
vaccination, which works on the last line of defence, the antibody-antigen response to an illness. Homeopathic immunisation, we don't have time to talk about this now, works on the first line of defence, which is the line of susceptibility or what we call idiosyncrasy. Once again, I, as I said earlier, I can't explain how it works, but I can, give, well, not on in orthodox terms, I can give you an esoteric explanation or energetic explanation, but I can show you that it does. Now, if you're talking about something like the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is one of the few vaccines that still contains mercury. Mercury has been taken out of most of our standard um, childhood vaccines in Australia and uh, America, but the flu vaccine uh, generally still contains mercury. It all of them contain, just about all of them, contain aluminium. The problem we have with vaccination, I'm actually not anti-vaccine. I have plenty of patients who vaccinate their children. It's not a problem, and themselves, it's not a problem for me. But the problem is this, that 20 developed countries around the world have vaccine damage compensation schemes. Yours is the best known. Australia, my country, is one of only three countries in the developed world that doesn't have a vaccine damage compensation scheme, along with Canada and Ireland, I think. And when you look at those schemes, we see billions, literally billions of dollars being paid by governments as vaccine injury compensation. So there's no question at all that at times vaccines can cause injury. When you read vaccine inserts from the vaccine manufacturers, they state vaccines may cause injury at times. They say it's very rare, but they acknowledge it can happen. And finally, when you look at orthodox medical journals, we find that the one thing that has never been published in decades and billions of dollars of uh, spent on vaccine safety research is a comparison between fully vaccinated and fully unvaccinated children looking at their physical, emotional and intellectual health over a period of time. That's never been done. There are six small studies that I'm aware of. I did one of them as part of my PhD. Uh, but, and there are five others that I'm aware of which explicitly look at this. And every one of those studies, none of which on their own are, are adequate to give a definitive answer, all say that the unvaccinated cohort is three to five times healthier than the um, vaccinated cohort in terms of chronic disease and when you look at DPT vaccine in Africa, death. So we know that there's a, a level of concern. Even if you believe all the, the, the most positive portrayal of what vaccines have done, and vaccines have done positive things. I wouldn't for a moment say they haven't achieved, in, particularly in certain epidemic situations, a positive result. Um, when you look at the best example of that, there still is a case to answer in terms of risk benefit. Now, if you look at something like flu, uh, every year I use a remedy Influenzinum, which is um, basically a nosode of flu, and I use a triple nosode, which has three different strains of flu. And I've got people who come back, I only see them once a year, they come back once a year. Um, in Australia, it's about now, actually, leading into the uh, uh, 
autumn and winter season in America. It's obviously um, probably around September-ish, October-ish, um, where they just use that as a, a preventative. Now, I've kept a lot of records of uh, the use of homeopathic immunization in childhood diseases. I haven't kept specific records on flu, but there's no reason to believe that the, the figures are any different. Uh, I have a, you know, collected a lot of anecdotal stuff where particularly elderly people living in retirement homes. I, mean, I always remember um, a, a, a little old lady, <laughs> I have to call her that because that's what she was, came in one year and said, you know, I'm the only person in the home who didn't get the vaccine last year and I was the only person who didn't get the flu. And, you know, that's an anecdote. But it's the sort of thing you hear time and time again. In Australia last year, the flu vaccine had an effectiveness ranging between 10 and 15% as measured by the orthodox uh, vaccine people in Australia. We can expect, on average, homeopathic immunisation to give around about a 90% uh, effectiveness. And that's across all diseases, where with the vaccines it varies considerably. You know, measles, they say, is 99% after two doses. Well, it's probably closer to 90. But it's still very high level of effectiveness, um, down to things like flu. Uh, the cholera vaccine is a very poor uh, because the strain in the community in developed countries is changing the whooping cough vaccine, the efficacy has probably gone from about 80-something down to about 60-something. So, you know, they change. But because we're working with a different principle on a different level of the immune system, the 90% average is reasonable to look at with homeoprophylaxis. So what it does do, it gives parents, mum and dad, not just mum, who are trying to fall pregnant, an option to use over the flu season, which is certainly probably more effective than the vaccine, but which is certainly non-toxic and will not interfere with whatever method or methods you're using to try and fall pregnant. It will not interfere with your subtle system or your physical system. And so it's a genuine option for people to consider. With things like you know, measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox. I mean, every one of my generation here, we all had those diseases. And in healthy children with appropriate nursing care, you know, they're very mild diseases. Homeopathy has wonderful treatments for those simple uh, diseases, for the ones that I've mentioned. So once again, you know, it's much better for a young girl to get rubella, which is probably the mildest of all infectious diseases, because that's her best chance of being immune to rubella for the rest of her life. Mm. Neither the vaccine nor the homeopathic option will guarantee lifelong immunity against rubella. But, you know, the homeopathic option has one great example, uh, benefit over the vaccine, and that is if a woman falls pregnant unexpectedly or even expectedly and she finds that her rubella antibodies are very low, it's quite safe to take the rubella immunization homeopathically in the first trimester. Mm. It doesn't hold the risks potential in the vaccine. And even the vaccine manufacturers say you should not be vaccinated in the first trimester. So, you know, we have such wonderful options here. And this is one of the things that Hunneman said, not talking just about immunization, but about medicine in general. And even though it was 200 years ago, you know, the 
they use toxic substances like mercury and sulfur drugs and all these sort of things. Um, the, the modern drugs, some are much less toxic, but some are just as toxic. What he said is that he couldn't believe that the beneficial creator of all would not provide us with simple, safe, natural solutions to almost all health issues. And I believe that very sincerely. I believe it too. Amen to that. Um, and and just, uh, sorry, I just wanted to, um, uh, a little while back when you were talking about them removing mercury or thimerosal out of the vaccines, um, Dr. Golden said aluminum. We call it aluminum here. I yeah. just wanted people to understand because I think that's sort of a, a greenwash technique where they go, look it, we've removed the mercury out of your vaccines. But then if you read what is left in the vaccine, I mean, you're like, okay, well, the mercury's out, but there's 50 other um, potentially toxic a, a additives. Story I have exactly on that point. Yeah. And I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to be sued. Okay. But some years ago, um, a, a patient of mine rang up and said, oh, your name's being mentioned on a certain radio station, ABC. And so I dialed in and I missed most of the conversation, but it was an interview with one of Australia's leading vaccine developers, mm -hmm. someone who is held in the highest esteem right across governments, etc. And the uh, interviewer was a bit of an idiot, actually. He was a charming guy. He was an old ex-rock star, and he'd probably smoked too much dope and taken too many other substances. I don't think he had all his brain cells. But There's a remedy a for that. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe. He had a list, of, um, a list of questions, and he said to the, the professor, oh, so um, I believe that there are uh, heavy metals, uh, toxic metals in vaccines. And this guy said, Oh, no, no, no. We, we took mercury out of vaccines, you know, some year, of childhood vaccines some years ago. And the presenter went, oh, well, that's great. So there's no, there's no metals in vaccines anymore. And, and the guy didn't say anything. And at the end of the interview, the, in, uh, the uh, radio guy, he said the same thing in his summary. And so we know that metals have been taken out of vaccines. Once again, the professor said nothing. And he was associated with a vaccine that not only had aluminium, but also borax. And educated readers can work out which one I'm talking about probably. But um, uh, it, was, it was not a lie, but it wasn't the truth. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem, that the, the leading scientific organisations in your country and mine and around the world frequently, they may not outward directly lie but they don't tell us the truth the full truth and that's the problem and therefore educated people who are doing their own research when they find this out they lose confidence and they think well if they've not told us the truth about this then what else haven't they told us the truth about and then we have examples and the most recent one from your country relates to the cdc center for disease control and how, in this case, they actually did lie by removing data from certain studies. And there's, I'm sure many of your listeners would know about Dr. William Tomlinson, who still works for the CDC under whistleblower legislation. And he was a co-author of a study where they actually intentionally and deliberately removed data to come to a conclusion that there was no link between a particular vaccine and autism. 
And you see, when people discover this, and this is not a conspiracy theory, it's a, it's a fact. When people discover this, they think, well, if they've manipulated the figures here, where else have they manipulated the figures? All we need and deserve as parents and want to be parents is simple truth. And, you know, this is what we're not getting from our scientific leaders. And it's such a shame. And the problem is that the politicians who basically, most of whom are ignorant about medical things, um, they're heavily influenced by support, financial and otherwise they get. They're also heavily influenced because not all of them are bought off. I'm not saying that for a moment. They're, they're heavily influenced by the advice they get from esteemed scientists, people with the most impressive qualifications in the highest medical positions in our countries and in our research institutions. They think, well, these guys, you know, they, they're so much smarter than I am. If they say something, it's got to be true. And the fact is that it, often it isn't. And this is a real problem. Um, just, a, just, a, just a short on that one. Um, yeah. You know, when, when that came out, and if you bring that up to people, it's almost like too overwhelming of, it's just too overwhelming um, that information. They kind of go back to, well, uh, you know, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, he was discredited yeah. on everything. And, and they sort of, because it's, it, it's so, um, it, it's scary for people to kind of face that maybe they're not getting the entire truth. And um, I think we need to um, kind of scoot on from that because that is a whole other conversation. And I don't know, I just want, I mean, I think we've planted some seeds for people just to go out and, and gather more information. There's so much misinformation out there and it, it is really challenging to disseminate the truths from the half truths and lies and things like that. There's a lot of money at stake. Um, Charlie, yeah. uh, look, I'm really sorry, but I've just had a, an emergency uh, happen in, in the business. Can you, um, I don't know if you're able to edit this later, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to. Oh yeah, absolutely. We covered so minutes. much. Is that all right? Oh, or, or, or do you think we've done enough. I mean, we've we've done we've done so much. Can I can invite you back for a part two? I can come right back just to finish sure. up. Okay, okay, I'll pause it. Okay. Yeah, just pause. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I'm back. Oh, it's okay. I hope everything's it okay. It was um, it was a lost key to a business that I own, and no one could get in. Um, oh, okay, okay. Out. And I live in the bush. Um, I can't yes. Show I thought like a water pipe had broken or something. I was <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. No problem. Hey, um, how do people find out more about you and your work? So I have a website, um, three W's home study, H O M S T U D Y dot net. Okay. I'm, I'm going to put that in the podcast study. notes. Think of homeopathy study. Yeah. So home study dot net. They can have a look there. Uh -huh. uh, and certainly there's, on the immunization page, there's some summaries of, of information about that. Um, I've written, you know, books about these different topics. They can see what's available there. And uh, that's probably the first point of call. Okay. And I just want to, before I, I often forget, if you like the content that we're sharing and you appreciate the guests that we brought on, please support us at Fertility Hour by subscribing share your comments. Um, we will read all comments and we appreciate your support so much. So um, 
let's say, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, and um, this is kind of, you know, we're heading towards the end of our conversation. Um, we talked about homeoprophylaxis and I wanted to talk about it more, but I feel like that's almost like a part two interview because you've spoken about it, but then we didn't really maybe um, explain it a little bit more. So people can obviously look it up on your website and you'll give an explanation of it, correct? Um, well, it's more, I give more a summary of the evidence of effectiveness. Got it. Because okay. as I said before, we know it's safe, but there's no point in having something safe if it doesn't work. So what I've spent 30 years doing is trying to collect evidence. And as I said, when I started, um, we had two, almost 200 years of clinical evidence, but no statistical studies of, of any note. And now, um, you know, we, as particularly over the last decade and a half, there's massive statistical evidence looking at effectiveness in literally tens of millions of people. And at the bottom of my immunization page on the website, there's a little 10 minute video if people want to have a look. It talks about its use in three countries in 26 particular interventions. And when you look at an annualized basis involving over 91 million people, and most of these interventions were done by government employed doctors. So this is not some crazy thing that weird homeopaths have come up with and you know it's used by a few people over here and a few people over there in some countries literally tens of millions of people are involved and as i said earlier i'm going back to india next month to work with the wonderful people over there at ccrh and in other places in in kerala state they have something called the reach program which involves all the doctors in you know all around the state having a reporting system. If there's an outbreak of infectious disease, they work out the remedy that's needed to prevent as well as treat, and they broadcast that to the reach groups all across the state so that people are prepared and can be immunised homeopathically in advance as something spreads. And they've had wonderful results with that. I mean, the, the, their methods and systems over there can lead the world. But, of course, there's a lot of snobbery, and the other thing is there's no money in it. So, there's no money. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because, you know, if, if you're listening today and going, well, I've never heard of this because, I mean, I was blown away when I read about epidemics being stopped in their tracks using homeoprophylaxis. Um, and you go, I've never heard of this outside of this literature because, I mean, honestly, there's no money in it. And um, I mean, for for a couple rupees a day, you could protect so many people or pennies a day. But um, yeah, you, you might not hear about it unless you kind of listen to programs like ours, find out more about Dr. Isaac's work. And um, there are practitioners here in the United States. There's also a book called The Solution, right? Um, Okay. Well, anyway, um, there is, you know, there's information that um, you can find out more. And, and so kind of to, to recap, um, you know, as far as like immunizations during the time that you're trying to conceive, um, homeopathy does provide a very viable, effective, safe solution um, that I feel like people should know about as far as, um, you know, vaccinating um, your own child. That's a very personal decision, but um, there are side effects to vaccines and, and homeopathy can address those. Um, They're two well. separate issues. Immunizing okay. 
and removing or treating vaccine injury are two quite separate things. Okay. But in a way, they're different sides of the same coin. But look, if you'd like to, uh, and your listeners would like to have a another little session, maybe after I get back from India, because I could mm. share with you then some of the latest uh, research that I, I'd be um, finding out myself, because I go there to learn. I, I don't go there to preach or convert. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go there to learn what they're doing. And um, it's a great honour and privilege for me to be able to do that, just as, as I said, that when I used to go to Cuba from 2008 to 2012, uh, it was a wonderful learning experience. And, um, you know, they uh, had some amazing uh, examples. Like, if I can just give you one very, very mm-hmm. briefly. Um, in 2010, in the swine flu um, scare, or was it 2012 anyway, whichever, uh, was coming through the world. Um, the Cuban government instructed the people at Finlay Institute to immunise the whole country over 12 months of age against swine flu, 9.8 million people. And when we looked at the data, they um, there I think there were only a dozen, you know, very, very few cases, but that didn't prove anything because you didn't know how many people brought the disease in. But at the same time, they immunised against pneumococcal disease. And when you looked at the graph for the 2010, it went down like that, and next year back up again. So it was mm. unambiguous that it had a significant effect uh, on deaths from pneumococcal disease. Um, and so this was a an experiment on a whole country directed by a government. And you can't get a better experiment than that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did massive interventions there against leptospirosis, They've also done wonderful work with dengue fever, hepatitis, cholera, etc. So, uh, you know, I know people in America may have different views about Cuba because of the history, but basically because of the American embargo over the last 50 plus years, Big Pharma couldn't work in there and therefore they had to become self-sufficient. So they vaccinate, mm. they use a lot of vaccines. But, you know, the scientists who did this in Cuba were the people who made the vaccines. The Finlay Institute is a vaccine manufacturer, but they were also the ones who were dispensing the homeopathic immunisation. That's what I call real science. Mm. That is genuine science where these people who are experts in vaccines say, okay, this is an option which will save lives and prevent suffering. It's not a matter of we're going to try and make this option the premier one and this one secondary, this is this option is what is best now to save lives. And they did it. And you know what? It worked out at about 1 20th the cost of the swine flu vaccine. Oh, I imagine. Oh, we I imagine. spent $200 yeah. million dollars on swine flu vaccine, most of which was never even used. You could have immunised the whole of Australia for about $10 million homeopathically without any risk of side effects. This is the economics we're talking about. But anyway, that's if you like, um, uh-huh. I'm very happy to, uh, for us to resume the conversation. In a, oh, in a, oh, oh, yeah, because, I mean, in part two, I really want to, you know what I want to ask you is, um, with homeoprophylaxis, um, um, a woman was having a conversation with her doctor, and he said, and he he's familiar with homeopathy. I, I don't know to what extent. And he said that doesn't make sense to me. Homeopathic remedies are used when the disease is already in the body, not prophylactically. And so that I want to ask you. And then uh, this 
Can I just this, answer that yeah. really quickly? Okay, okay, yeah. The first person to use homeopathic medicines prophylactically was Dr. Mm -hmm. Hunneman, who founded homeopathy. Okay. His use was 1798, as I said before. So any classical homeopath who says they should only be used for treatment, and that's what a lot of people are taught in colleges incorrectly, they should mm -hmm. look at Hunneman the founder of homeopathy, who was the founder of homeoprophylaxis. I'm going to say no more. Than okay, that. well, th I mean, thank you. I, I Thank you for just really just clarifying that in a short and concise way. And then here's another thing, and this is more to our listeners. Um, I was interviewing Dr. Leah Heckman. She's a naturopath and an, endo, an endometriosis um, researcher. And um, she worked with a colleague that said about 80% of women with severe endometriosis um, had sexual trauma, severe sexual trauma in their lives. And so then I'm thinking homeopathy to treat endometriosis because you're really treating that deep sexual trauma. That Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that estimate is pretty close to the money. And the other thing is that whilst you need to treat the deep sexual trauma, there's a a physical or there's a remedy that we use for scarring and adhesions called thiocinamine. Mm. And very often I give that in low potency repeated frequently just to work physically for women with a, a lot of endometriosal endometriosis issues. And it's very, very helpful in many cases. So we can work from the physical, we can work from the deep psychological, you know, towards the solution. So homeopathy has a lot of flexibility to something like that. It absolutely does. Okay, so I'm inviting you back to a part two. I will reach out to you. I thank you so much um, for this interview. And I know you you said you were out in the bush. That worried me about the internet connection. But I think things, <laughs> other than a few tiny spotty moments in the beginning, I think it went very well. And I love yeah. listening to you. You're just so poetic in your explanation of it. That's um, very okay. fine. I can listen thank to you for hours. So, uh, okay, oh, I will. You. I'll reach out, Dr. Isaac. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate okay. your time. And blessings to you and all your. Thank you. thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called "Restore Your Fertility Naturally." Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.